Hello, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? This podcast is a resource dedicated to those struggling with eating disorders. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is, maybe a brother, sister, daughter, wife, we want to be here to provide resources and offer hope. I am Dina Lewis, and I'm here with my husband, co-host, Brian Lewis. We are not doctors, but we do come with more than 20 years history in dealing with eating disorders. Whether you found us on purpose or by mistake, whatever the case, we hope by the end of this episode, you have learned something, or at least if you are struggling, you do not feel alone. Welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? I'm Dina. And I'm Brian. I want to thank everybody for listening to our podcast. We really, really appreciate it. We're both new to this and it's exciting and scary all at the same time. But anyway. It's scare sighting. <laughs> so a little bit what I thought about talking about in this podcast episode is this week, Brian's mom died. We knew it was going to happen, but it's still kind of a shock to the system. And it made me think about how to deal with things like this when you're coming out of recovery or when you're still in your disease and being able to deal with the emotions about it, the feelings about it. So I kind of wanted to make this episode a little bit about the caretakers, the moms, the dads, parents, brothers, sisters, as well as the addict. But I realized when I was in my disease, it was all about Dina and it didn't matter what else was going on. Dina's needs were going to be met first. And that's what mattered most. After becoming a parent, I've realized more and more what my mom and dad and brothers and sisters dealt with at that time and the unconditional love you have for someone. I mean, I was still an adult at the time, but I can only imagine what maybe parents and caregivers are thinking at the time of maybe this isn't your child's first treatment stay. Maybe it's the fifth or sixth or seventh, and you're kind of wondering to yourself, is this treatment stay going to be the one that sticks? Is this the one that's going to help? How are we going to afford this? I think I've said it before, but I do believe in God. But a lot of people that when I was in treatment had a higher power. So that might have been they believed in the trees as their higher power, or they believed in horses. And it might sound kind of crazy, but that's what they believed in at the time. I do believe that God was in my life And helped me through so many things, not just my eating disorder, but through my brother's death, through my accident, and many of the tragedies that I had to deal with at that time. It was a big bill when we were coming out of treatment, and I think it was $70,000 for that, what, seven months I was in there. And that was just to cover the bed for me to sleep in. That wasn't anything else. Both my parents were retired, and We've said it before, but my brothers were giving their paychecks to my husband so that we could stay every month in treatment and be able to cover that. And it's scary, and I know you wonder, how am I going to do it? But I do believe in a higher power. I do believe that things will work out. I remember reading a card from my brother that he had sent me while I was in treatment. He was concerned about something I had said, and he was concerned that you know, you have to do this for you. You can't do it for anybody else but you, or it's not going to work. Well, that's true. But I don't know many people that just head into treatment and say, well, I want to go, yippee, let's get this done, and I want to be better. Because I wasn't that person. I think I was scared of what, if I didn't go to treatment, what was going to happen. And so it was fear-based that how I got in there. Now, 
eventually, when I started getting better, it turned around and I wanted to be there. But I don't know that there's an ideal time where you can say, hey, I know it's time for me to go in and they're willing to go in. And I was in treatment with a lot of young girls, 16, 14, that had been in treatment several times. And I don't know what to say. What do you think, Brian? Well, a couple of things there that I want to unpack for just a minute. When you talk about a higher power, it's not necessarily in your higher power as God, but it's just a recognition. And we may have confused people that aren't in the program. A higher power is just that. It's something greater than yourself that you recognize that you don't have all the power. So when you say it's the trees or the chair, whatever it is that you recognize is above yourself, then that's what your higher power is. Just a clarification for people who aren't in the program may not be familiar with that term, higher power. It's to kind of take the initial religious overtones when AA first started, because some people really have a problem with assigning religion to something that's a treatment model. So they changed it from God to a higher power. So that's just the first thing. The second thing we talked about that you were saying that kind of I wanted to put my two cents in with someone saying, do this for yourself, otherwise it's not going to work. You have to do it for yourself. And I think that's true. But initially, whatever gets you in to get help is what you need to do. So if it's just to shut your parents up or I'm going to do this for my cousin or I'm going to do this for my sister or I'm going to do this for whoever, initially I think that's okay to do to say, I'm going to do this to get well until you really get to a point where you're like, no, this is really for me. That's when I think when you've come to that point, that's when you start making a turn for the better and really recognizing that this is for me, then it's a different mindset. And like I said, I think it's okay initially to say, I'm going to go for somebody else and then make that transition as you work through your recovery. One of the things that resonated with me when we were in treatment and we were having one of the family meetings was the number one word that an addict hates to hear is no. That one really kind of was like, what? <laughs> that really makes a lot of sense to me now that I hear somebody say it. I never heard anybody say it. But your loved one who is the addict is manipulating, is all in an effort to get whatever it is that they need to satisfy their addiction. And so you come to them and say, what? No, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm unwilling to do that anymore. That's when the manipulation starts in an attic to make you say yes until you just throw up your hands. You're like, I'm fine. Then just do it. And that's when you have to hold your lines to this point in this episode. It's not just the loved one who's the attic needs to go get help. You need to get help too, because you need to understand what's going on in this relationship that for whatever reason, you're helping to feed their addiction and you're helping to keep them in that cycle. And I think it's really difficult for the addict who doesn't have the support of family really trying to understand the nature of their disease because they feel unsupported and they feel like, oh, this is just my thing that I'm doing. It's not our thing that we're doing collectively to help get me to a place of wellness. And I know I have family members who have struggled with addiction, with their 
drug of choice being alcohol. When they go to seek treatment, they're away from the alcohol and they're working a program. And then they come home and all their parents want to do is drink and have a party. And the responsibility lies with the addict for your own recovery. However, I think some degree of, hey, maybe it's not the best time to have this party with the alcohol since my loved one's already dealing with this. Let's wait a couple of years until they're in recovery and then we'll bring the alcohol back because we don't have a problem with it. And I think sometimes family members are just like, ah, you know, that's their problem. They're going to have to deal with it one way or another. And they kind of take a hard stance where I don't know if that's really appropriate, especially for somebody that's just in the first one year or under in the recovery process. Agreed. I mean, Brian had an older brother that passed away. I think it was drugs and alcohol. And I remember hearing his mom say, what a wasted life. I'm going to say right now that to me, that's ignorance because it's not a wasted life. I mean, recovery is a hard thing to do. Every single day you have to work at your own recovery and people don't understand. It's not like it's a flip of a switch and you're like, okay, I'm better now. I don't even want it because there's a part of you that always wants a part of that, you know, eating disorder or alcohol or whatever it is. It takes a lot of work and a group of people to surround you to help you and support you through those difficult times. So I don't think there's ever a wasted life. I think a struggled life. Yeah. And I know I think about my mom saying that to my brother and as much as it should have really just sent me off into a fit of anger, instead it kind of was like, okay, well, this is exactly someone who doesn't even have the first beginning to understand what addiction is. Because did he do great things in his life? Not really. I mean, he had a wife, he had three kids. And by the time I had met him back, you know, it had been probably 10 years since I'd seen him. He was in a recovery program and he had lost his wife, his daughter, his eldest son, all to addiction. And he was trying to get clean and sober. And I think through that struggle, he was inspiring others. Other people were hearing his story and investing in their own recovery. And I think ultimately, while he never found a place where he found recovery, ultimately, it was his struggle that maybe inspired somebody or maybe caused somebody else to hold fast in their recovery when they were struggling. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter because he was a person who was ill that was seeking to be well. And that's something to be admired, not something to go well. Ultimately, he failed because his life ended because of drugs and alcohol. While that's true, his life did fail from drugs and alcohol. It's in that struggle. I think all of us can relate to how hard it is to get well and how do we do those things. Well, and I think it's important to recognize that you have a problem saying those words. You know, the first step that I recognize that I have a problem here and I can't fix it and I need help. It's cunning. It's baffling. It's just a terrible thing to go through. But I want to remind everybody that there were times when I got back home and I would go over to my in-laws for dinner and not just them. I just chose that one for an example. But we would go over there and my father-in-law, before we got married, had had quadruple bypass surgery. So he, my mother-in-law, everything was fat-free in that house. Everything. 
And could I have gone over there for dinner and just had what they had? Yeah, I could have. And I could have said, oh, I forgot, but I didn't. But I really had to pre-plan everything I did, especially in the very beginning of recovery. Like when I went over to their house, I would get this like little bag. It looked like a little gift bag. And I would put in my salad dressing and I put in like a fat, whatever the fat I would bring in, knowing that she probably wouldn't have that. But I wasn't going to let that be my excuse. So it would upset her quite a bit because she felt like, well, what, my stuff's not good enough for you? And it wasn't that. I was trying to protect myself. I was trying to do what I had been taught. And there's going to be people that aren't going to support you along the way, and they're going to question it. I'm hoping you have someone like I have a Brian, and you have a Brian out there, that will help you voice your needs and what you need to do for your own recovery. But those were struggles that I faced from time to time. You know, there were times where I would have to go, we'll say, we went shopping, and all of a sudden it was lunchtime, and I didn't have anything to eat. Well, I'd have to make sure that I brought something with me because I could always make the excuse, well, there was nothing there to eat, so I just couldn't eat. So it's very important to be proactive, I guess, in your own recovery and think ahead. Like I was saying, too, if you're struggling with alcohol and you know you're going to be in a place that has alcohol, what's the best for you to do? Is it to miss the family gathering and just say, you know, I'm not going to go there? It might be because, hey, I got to tell you what, Not every member of your family supports you. A matter of fact, I'm confident in saying many of your family look at you and say, if he just had the willpower enough to set down the bottle, he'd be an okay guy. But he just can't seem to get there. And so, yeah, your family is judging you. And even in an eating disorder, if she just eat, you know, be a heck of a person. Maybe you need to consider that in your recovery and say, okay, I'm going here. What do I need to do to protect myself? What do I need to do to invest in my own recovery? What are the things I'm going to encounter? What happens if this happens? What's my plan? If I'm there and I'm triggered because maybe somebody has my trigger food or somebody has my trigger drug of choice and they're offering it to me, how do I handle those situations? And it's important to plan for those inevitabilities and to have an exit strategy already planned out before you go there, like Dina was saying. When I left treatment for good and went home, it was the week of Thanksgiving. I remember going to my sister-in-law's house for Thanksgiving, then after, and everybody had their eyes on me. I mean, it was just like, guys, you know, what the heck? But I learned after I got home, you know, they were happy I was home and happy I was better. But I do think they were waiting for that shoe to drop. Like, is this going to last? You know, the last one didn't. And I really had to earn back trust. I do remember being very upset about it in the beginning, thinking like, heck, I've worked so hard at this and you guys don't even trust me. But they needed to see action. They'd heard the words before, but now they needed to see me put work with that. I mean, they needed to see me actually following a food plan, living a new life. It wasn't overnight. It was a good six months to a year before people really like, okay, maybe she's really going to work at this time. Maybe this is going to last longer than six months. They don't know, you know, my family saw me for small periods of time when they would come and visit me, but they didn't see the big picture. They didn't see how much I was doing. And I was kind of in a bubble or was in a bubble in treatment. I mean, if I, I had trauma or a crisis or I freaked out, I was in with all these people that could support me. I go home. I don't have that bubble anymore. 
I remember one of my brothers coming to, like, they invite your family back, and it's kind of all about your family, and everybody kind of gives an opinion, and they listen to your story and stuff like that. And my dad was there. I see my brother walk in, and he has this big yellow tablet. (laughs) And I knew he had a million questions, and he was serious about it. And I appreciate that. That's okay. I mean, at least he's looking for understanding. He's not just assuming, like, is this what she's doing, and this is what's going to happen. Your family loves you and they're scared for you. I didn't take that in too much when I was that ill. It wasn't really, I mean, I knew I was dying, but I didn't even see myself dying. I just thought, okay. (laughs) I'm just doing what I do. Yeah. I'm not hurting anyone. I mean, you guys have heard it over and over again. Why is everybody so focused on me? I'm just doing what I'm doing. And then we'd have those family suedo interventions without a professional interventionist, which at the time would have helped, (laughs) but I don't even know if one existed or we could have got somebody of value because so much of what we did didn't have a person that knew what they were doing. We've talked about the first treatment facility and the stumbles there that we were kind of let down from the medical community. Okay. And then we have a therapist and now we have this person, we have that person. There's nobody with a sign on their door that says, eating disorders solved here. And if they did, I wouldn't trust them. So it was hard when we'd have those family interventions where promises get made and we see your health declining and we want to do something. The pushback always is, well, I do what I do. I'm fine. You know, I'm not hurting anyone. Let me just do what I'm doing. And rarely successful and a lot of talking. And ultimately, you know, you come out of those family meetings like, Even at the time, we didn't really do anything to change anything. But we were talking the other day about my grandfather, and this is quickly turning into my family's struggle (laughs) with addiction. I brought my brother up. I brought my brother up. Okay, so good. We were talking about my grandfather, and my grandfather was born back in the day, pre-Alcoholics Anonymous. And bless him, he struggled with alcohol. And there wasn't any resource for him. And anything that came up that purported to help, he would at least invest in attempting whatever it was to help. I remember my mom telling me they had this medication that was called the cure. And what it did was you would take the medication and then if you drank alcohol, it would make you sick to your stomach. And that was going to cure you of alcoholism. This is what people believed in the day because they didn't understand addiction and what was happening. He would take that medication and yeah, when you start taking the alcohol, it makes you sick. So what's an addict going to do? Well, an addict's not going to take that medication because I need the alcohol. So eventually he would just stop taking the medication and go back into his routine of taking his drug of choice and watching it take his friends, his family, and his life. Ultimately, that's what happened to him is it did take his health and ultimately deteriorated his health to the point where it took his life. And You know, my mom didn't have a good relationship with her dad. And the handful of times, maybe two times, I remember my grandfather coming over to our house. It was not a good. (laughs) And we were excited because my grandfather was an ex-boxer. He was an ex-CB. He was a man's man. He had that gravelly voice and kind of this presence. But my mom would always get really upset when he would come over. And then something would happen and they would end up in a screaming match and she would throw him out of the house. So the two times I remember that happening, it was 
okay, if something's going on with grandpa and I don't really understand what it is, but there's something going on between mom and he, and I don't understand it, but there's something. It's really too bad that he never got an opportunity to reclaim his life through recovery and getting into a program really because the program didn't exist. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous was just getting started and was really sort of an underground thing. Not only were the members anonymous, but especially where he lived, those meetings in that group would have been like people didn't even really understand what they were doing and wouldn't have championed this as this is really a solution to help get better. Well, I hope people, I hope parents out there and caretakers aren't thinking that we're like, you guys aren't doing a good job because that's not what we're saying. No, you're doing the best job you absolutely can with absolutely no resources and nobody ever taking care of you. All your energy, 100% of it is invested in what do I need to do? Can somebody help me? Nobody understands. And I see my loved one before me dying each day that I see them. I mean, because I can keep sharing my story and telling you what I went through. But like we said, this is a family disease and we want to not only be here for the addict, we want to be here for the family, the brothers, the sisters, the parents, whoever you may be, because you're struggling just as much. You're probably even more scared than the addict is at this point. And I understand that now. I didn't understand that then, but I do now. Sometimes I will kind of leave it at this, that once I started getting better, I started getting into other people's food and like, oh, you need to eat this instead of that. And I have to remember that I have to stick to my own food plan and stay in my own food. Sometimes my kids are having like, when they're younger, Cheetos and French fries for lunch or dinner. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not a food plan, as Brian would remind me. But I was reminded not to get into somebody else's stuff. This is my journey, my food, and I just need to be in my own place. But we do care about all you guys out there, and that's why we wanted to focus a little bit on the caregivers and the parents today. Anyway, thank you for listening, and please, please, if anybody, could you please just share it with them or just share it and download it so we can get some more numbers up there. We appreciate everybody that's listening. We just really want this to get out there and let people know that we're here to help and spread the word. So with that, let's close with the way we close our program is with the serenity prayer. And just as a reminder, those who may not know who aren't in the program, the serenity prayer is something that reminds the addict and those around of really what's in their control and what's out of their control. So by saying this prayer, we're reaffirming that these things we can act on, these things we can't act on. And if we can't act on them, we ask for strength and guidance. So with that, God, grant me the serenity. To accept, to accept the, the things, things I cannot, cannot change, change, the courage to change the things I can, and, and the wisdom to know the difference. difference. Keep, Keep coming, coming back. back. It, it works when you work it, so work it, it. you're worth it. it. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us. If you found this podcast useful or we have given you hope and you want to reach out and contribute, feel free to do so at eatthatfat at gmail.com. That's eat that fat at gmail.com. Our pledge to you is that every penny that we get in contributions goes to production costs and keeping the lights on. We will not pay ourselves, but anything above and beyond production costs will go to benefit organizations that specialize in eating disorders. 
please reach out to us if you need resources or you just need to talk. You are not alone and there are people who care. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. So work it. You are worth it. Thank you.